Hi, I'm Susan Weisbauer, co-author of The Well-Trained Mind. And I'm Susanna Jarrett, editor at The Well-Trained Mind Press. And we're talking about education for all parents and for all children in all sorts of settings. And all kinds of education. I, I think you're really excited about this episode, aren't you, Susanna? I am, because for the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about classical education, and um, and it's a, it's a wonderful way to educate your children. But I know that some of you may be wondering, how does classical education compare to other popular methods like Charlotte Mason or Montessori? Are these terms synonymous? Can I call myself Charlotte Mason and classical at the same time? And so today, we're going to dive into comparing and contrasting classical education to a variety of other popular education methods. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And if you if you haven't listened to the first episode in this series, which is where we define what we mean by classical education, remember that it's always important when you start using terms to know what those terms mean. So maybe you want to go back and listen to that one. Uh, just, you know, so so we're clear about what we mean when we say classical education. So I think where we want to start, Susanna, is with one of the most common questions that I get, particularly from parents of younger students, and that is, how um, is classical education different from a Charlotte Mason education? Because that's been such a popular way, again, particularly for younger children, to actually reach some of the same goals that classical education has. Right. And I, I'm not super familiar with Charlotte Mason, but I have this impression of this very gentle nature walks and copy work. And so I'm excited to learn more about how you would compare classical education to Charlotte Mason and what makes Charlotte Mason what it is. Well, one of the really fun things about Charlotte Mason is that she was a classical educator. That was her oh, whole wow. background. Yeah, that's how she was trained. And in a lot of ways that is what she brought into this project of childhood education but she had a really really particular conviction about what children again particularly young children need and a really big part of Charlotte Mason education has to do with engagement. So she thought of engagement as really being the center of education, that you really had to get the student invested in what they were learning, which was a reaction not to classical education, but to the sort of increasingly formal, structured, if I say Prussianized, maybe some of our reader, listeners and readers will understand what that means. This very programmatic way of instruction in which you're imparting information to students whether they want it or not. And mm. she lived at the turn of the century in a time when classroom education, in terms, again, of these very structured, you know, 40-minute periods, change class, 40-minute periods, change class, this very uh, structured and almost military way of teaching children without a great deal of um, attention to their individual needs or to whether they were feeling any buy-in was really taking over public education. So a lot of what you see in Charlotte Mason is this reaction to this sort of workbook-centered, very programmed, very inflexible, very military way of educating children that also kept them indoors for most of the day. Mm. It was something very different than the one-room schoolhouse of the 19th century. So a lot of what you see in Charlotte Mason is her reacting to something that was not in any way classical education. It was a form of education that had been imported into the United States in order to 
teach children, we had, it was a time of great immigration, teach children how to be Americans. And uh, Mm -hmm. she didn't think that that was really what education should be primarily, you know, directed to. Right. So it makes sense then that there are a lot of similarities with classical education, because in a way, they're both, at least the modern iteration of classical education, are reactions to a similar idea of a problem, these these Prussianized schools, as you called them. And so there definitely are a lot of similarities that I've noticed, like Mm -hmm. they both use copywork, narration, and dictation at an early age. That is a classical emphasis. Right. The copywork, narration, dictation, yeah. And they both really emphasize living books versus textbooks. Mm -hmm. And that was something that my mom had completely bought into, is like going to the library and getting a book about butterflies by somebody who just loved butterflies Mm -hmm. is going to be so much more engaging for a child than the paragraph in a textbook about butterflies. Well, and again, to put this back, to put this back, or or to... or a textbook that about natural science that maybe mentioned butterflies, right? Right, right. So, so again, to put this back in historical context, the time when we were moving, and, and it was right when she was working and teaching from the one-room schoolhouse uh, with personalized education from one teacher to a small group working at many different levels, when we were moving away from that, towards a more standardized way of education. Um, Charlotte Mason is living at the time when we see the first state boards of education formed. We see an explosion of new textbooks. If you were in a Mm -hmm. one-room schoolhouse, you didn't really have textbooks. You had primers. Mm-hmm. You know, to teach you the, to teach you the basics of, of right. reading, writing, and arithmetic. But you didn't have textbooks, and you certainly didn't have one textbook that everybody was using. Mm. That's a relatively modern invention. So her emphasis on living books and on great books was a corrective to what she saw um, as an over-reliance on these programmed textbooks. That's interesting. And so that probably then bleeds over into her whole emphasis on teaching needing to be a language rich environment. That when you're using living books and great books, you're you're encountering language which is again rich. It's it's much different than the stilted simplified language in many textbooks. Right. And she also wasn't as worried about accomplishing moving from grade to grade at certain ages, right? I think there is more blending and focusing on the development of a child um, similar to a classical education. Yes, and she, she didn't really like the idea of grades. We didn't really have grades in the way that we now think of them before this, what I keep calling the Prussianization, because it's such a useful word, um, of, our, of our public schools, where the emphasis became uh, putting kids of the same age working at the same level in these little like military cohorts and having them progress through together like they were troops, you know, moving from one rank to right. the next. That was, again, during her lifetime was a relatively new concept. So it's not surprising that rather than emphasizing levels or grades, which she didn't find particularly helpful or meaningful, she really focuses on whether or not a child is developing mastery, what accomplishment level a child is at. So I think with all of these similarities that we're talking about, classical education and Charlotte Mason really um, reacting to the same sort of phenomenon. Right. And if you're interested and you haven't listened yet, um, our episode about where classical education comes from has some history that gets into both the Prussianization of schools and also a little bit into Charlotte Mason as well. So those are some really interesting similarities. Now I'm curious to hear what makes Charlotte Mason different from classical. Well, 
So, so the first thing I think to remember um, is that uh, when you're encountering a Charlotte Mason education, are you actually reading Charlotte Mason? So Charlotte Mason's ideas have been probably most often distributed by Karen Andriola, who was one of the first homeschool-focused writers to really explore what Charlotte Mason did. And that's a great introduction to Charlotte Mason, but a lot of it is affected by the fact that Karen Andriola herself has a much more unschooling focused Mm. bent to her work. And we're going to talk about unschooling in in a little bit here. So what you're getting if you're reading an interpreter of Charlotte Mason is not always exactly what Charlotte Mason, I think, would have said herself. I think if you go back to her original writings, you'll see that they are much more um, in line with what we describe as classical orientation than maybe some of the later explanations or adaptations of her work have been. That's interesting. I wonder if that's where my impression growing up of Charlotte Mason being a very gentle kind of, maybe easy is not the right word, but as a kid, that's kind of how I thought about it is Charlotte Mason was a little bit easier yeah, and less academically rigorous, I guess. Well, and, and that's not, I mean, that's not a terrible interpretation of what she does because she really does emphasize learning from real life situations. So mm-hmm. if you possibly can um, in her writings, uh, she wants the child to learn math by going to the village shop. And she wants, you know, children to learn about nature by going outside and being in nature. And that, again, is partly a reaction to how structured schools were becoming at her time. But certainly in many interpretations of Charlotte Mason, that seems to be almost opposed to what classical education does in terms of really emphasizing that we can learn from the accumulated knowledge of the past, you know, that we can, mm-hmm. <laughs> that books are good. I mean, she certainly wouldn't have said that books aren't good, but that books can be even sometimes the best way to learn about something that it doesn't all have to be tied to real life situations. Okay. That makes sense. So a little bit more structure Mm -hmm. and like intentional book learning with a classical education. Yes. A little more structure, I think is a good way to put it. Um, Again, she's reacting against overstructuring. So that can make her sound quite opposed to the sorts of structure that a classical educator would prefer to have. But I think this kind of feeds into another difference here, which is you got to remember that Charlotte Mason was an early childhood educator. And learning math at the village shop works great for a third grader, but it's not going to work so well for a high school student who needs to learn trigonometry. Right. Right. So the learning from real life situations and, you know, really being physically engaged in an outside task as a way to as a way to educate really does, I think, work better for younger children than it does once you get up into that sort of middle logic stage, seventh grade and above. So I do think if you look at most Charlotte Mason influenced material, you'll see that it's directed more at elementary and early middle grade students. That's similar to Montessori, which we'll talk about in a little while, but there's a lot more resources for younger children. Yeah, exactly. So um, here again, the whole thing with with Charlotte Mason encouraging short morning lessons and less structure in the afternoon. Well, that really has to do with teaching younger children short Mm -hmm. lessons in the morning. And then by the afternoon, they're kind of done, you know. But that doesn't really work so well if you want to carry it over into high school and preparing students for college. So, I I mean, I would say that I think probably what most of these differences are centering around, the classical vision for educating 
a rhetoric stage student, that the whole time you're doing classical education, your goal is to produce a high school student who can read, think, evaluate, express their opinion. And definitely the emphasis in Charlotte Mason education is on the early years without, I think, so much of a, of a look towards, yes, but where are we going with this? And again, that's not a flaw. It's just a very different emphasis. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of the differences boil down to that. I will say that there is one area where I really do disagree pretty strongly with Charlotte Mason, and that is in writing. Okay. So because Charlotte Mason does tend to be more focused on natural learning and child-led learning, one aspect of that is that Charlotte Mason herself, and I think most Mason-influenced curricula, treat writing as though it's sort of a natural process, that if kids are just exposed to great literature, they will learn how to write. And that is true for some children, but it is just not true for all of them. So as a classical educator myself, I put a lot more emphasis on uh, this sort of rigorous step-by-step, let us learn how to write because writing is a skill as opposed to let us absorb good literature and then the good writing will automatically come. And that's just because as an educator, I haven't seen great results from that approach. That's interesting. Yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely seen it work for some kids, like you said, but it seems like, especially maybe more, I don't know, less naturally creative language artsy types need a little bit more explicit instruction when it comes to writing to be able to get to a place that they can use it successfully throughout their life. As with everything, do your own research if you can. Uh, If you're interested more in exploring Charlotte Mason uh, education or you're looking at a curriculum that describes itself as a Charlotte Mason education, be sure to go back and find some actual Charlotte Mason to read. Um, Most of her stuff is now public domain. You can find it at gutenberg.org or any number of other places. Yep. So as always, refer back to the source. Yes, and we'll link. Uh, we'll leave some links in the show notes as well, including an article by Susan describing Charlotte Mason and explaining some of these differences for your review if you're interested. But that brings us to our next comparison, which is classical education versus unit studies. Indeed. I'm personally a big fan of unit studies with some caveats because I think a unit study is is kind of this package, this package of learning. You could take mm-hmm. something, let's say a book that you and your whole family are reading. Maybe it's Little House on the Prairie. Maybe it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then you spend a week or two centering all your learning with this topic of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And you do arts and crafts and history and geography and sometimes even math and science projects and try to connect it to this one big pod of learning. And it can be a lot of fun and you typically do it as a family. So it's a lot of fun if you have kids of different ages. However, I think there are some caveats to making it work smoothly in the long run. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts on Introductory thoughts to unit studies. Well, um, so unit studies was, it's funny how there's there's fashions in education, like there's fashions in everything else. Unit studies, right. I think when my kids were coming along was the big thing. Everybody was doing unit studies. And I really appreciate the rationale behind it, which is actually quite similar to classical education and quite similar to Charlotte Mason, which is that education should be meaningful. Mm-hmm. And if you just learn a fact in isolation from other pieces of information, how does that stick in your mind? You know, so the the desire behind a unit study is that the student is going to remember this particular piece of grammar because they learned it 
while they were studying something else that they were really interested in, right? There's mm-hmm. that's sort of that buy-in, right? That hook. Uh, if you just get taught what the subject of a sentence is, you might forget it. But if you're working with a book that you absolutely adore and you learn what a subject is in relationship to, you know, the hero of the book who is the subject of the first sentence, then then you're making more of a meaningful connection. So there's this meaningful connection between different areas of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That is something that classical education also really emphasizes, which is right. why we do history and literature together for example. Right. Why we do science and history together as you get on into to high school. So that's, that is a really great similarity. And I think it's very important. Um, I think that when you're doing unit studies that combine history and literature and language arts, those work particularly well. Mm-hmm. And the same is true in the classical curriculum, that those are fields that sort of I don't know, you know, fit neatly together, if that makes sense. Right. And I, I totally agree. My mom did a lot of unit studies with us and I had so much fun with them. But one thing that she did is she never tried to incorporate math as part of it. it you know, we needed a sequential math study year by year math, you know, a mastery based mm-hmm. learner edition, learn what comes after that. And if it was just kind of piecemealed between from unit study to unit study, I don't think it would have worked. So I appreciated that we did a lot of crafts and art and geography and history and literature in our unit studies, but we had a separate math curriculum. And I think that worked really well. And then we also, as we got older, um, had a separate science curriculum because I just felt like it's hard to fit everything in at the, at the right level to make it really rigorous for every subject. No, I absolutely agree. So I do think that a a difference between classical education and unit studies is that classical education does put more emphasis on observing the internal logic of each Mm -hmm. field of study. You know, if if you're always doing your studies around topics and subjects, those, I, in my experience, have tended to be either history or literature focused. And you mm-hmm. really can do a disservice to math and to the sciences, which have an internal logic of their own, if that's right. your primary approach to those. So the classical education really does prefer an organized systematic approach to the different fields of studies. So history and literature together, absolutely. Science is kind of its own thing. Math is definitely its own thing. Mm -hmm. And I would say as a classical educator that I have noticed in the unit studies that I have reviewed that I don't feel like the language arts instruction in the language skills of writing, spelling, grammar are very coherent. Mm-hmm. Because again, like math, those are sequential things. You have to study them in a certain order so that they make sense. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And along with that, another difference I think that's important to mention is that those unit studies, you know, you do them together with all of your children. So just in a way that it might not hit every subject appropriately for those more sequential s- subjects, it may not also hit each student at the right stage of learning. And a really, really good unit study might be aligned so that you can have a middle schooler and a high schooler and an elementary student doing different projects within the same topic, but that's really hard to design. And so sometimes you run into, it's just not as logically organized for the different stages of development as maybe classical education would be. No, that's very true. I think you probably run the risk of dumbing down 
um, what you're mm-hmm. doing with the older children in particular, if you're going to you know, really stick to a strict unit study approach. Mm. And I would, I would also say one more difference is that classical education really does prefer to teach history chronologically. Yeah. Unit studies teach history according to whatever the theme is. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know that that's a fatal error. It, it wouldn't be my preferred way of teaching history, but just be aware that that is a, you know, pretty significant difference between the two. Right. But I, I do think that if you kind of meld them together, if you take what, one of the things that I think I really enjoyed homeschooling was we did unit studies, but history was the topic every time. Mm-hmm. So we do ancient Rome and have a unit on ancient Rome. And I'd make my little three ring binder page for ancient Rome. And I'd be so excited because we were starting a new unit. And then we might do arts and crafts. We might do maps. We might do any type of project would go into my ancient Rome folder, but we were still moving unit to unit was based on a chronological study of history, which organized it in a way that made sense um, and worked really well for us. Yeah. And I would say that in a lot of ways, the uh, the story of the world activity books and curricula guide that we sell mm-hmm. kind of are unit study ways to use the story of the world. So your organizing theme is this chronological history. We're not assuming that you're going to tie math and science into this because it's not very natural, but right. they're literature assignments, they are crafts, they are there are map geography assignments. So that really ties history, geography, literature, and then sort of, you know, hands-on experimentation and arts and crafts all together with the theme being the chronological study of history. So that is a type of a unit study approach. Right. And I would say before we move on, another couple of just huge benefits with unit studies, aside from the fresh start aspect of starting a new unit, you know, that kind of punctuates your school year and gives a chance for a kid to have a fresh start and get excited about school again. But it also gives space for kids to kind of dive deep into things. Mm -hmm. I remember in third grade, we did American, the American Revolution. And I just, we just, my siblings and I just got into it that year for whatever reason. And my mom kind of unleashed us and we probably, I'm pretty sure she slowed our schedule down so we could kind of sit on it for a while because we wrote a musical about the Boston Tea Party that we performed three times that included Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I know we were there first. Um, that we performed for our grandparents. We collected dead leaves from the park and threw them over the banister. Uh, that was the grand finale as we were singing a song we had written. So anyway, just getting to dive deep and when I got to high school and was studying American government, like things from that year, I still remembered from Mm -hmm. third grade. I'm just instilled into my memory because I had so much fun and really dove deep into American history. And sometimes when you do unit studies, I feel like the kids almost take it away. Like they, they come up with their Mm -hmm. own projects. They come up with their own, they just get excited and it gives you that space to let them dive in and explore something deeply. Yeah. That aspect of student Mm -hmm. (laughs) buy-in, you know, they really get invested invested in it is something that I think that unit studies and classical education and Charlotte Mason education can all share how important that is. Right. So I guess what we're describing here is the importance of, I guess it's kind of the importance of self-direction. Self-directed learning is such a slippery term because what you're describing there, you know, with your, with your, your musical, your American Mm -hmm. history musical is that 
that was definitely self-directed. You know, you guys got into that and decided to, you know, make it happen. And that was your motivation and your interest. But it happened because your parents introduced you to the topic and had set up certain things that you needed to learn as you got into it. Exactly. So self-directed learning, um, again, slippery term, but it has a lot to do with Montessori learning. So why don't you talk to us about that? Yeah, I actually, I worked at a Montessori public school and really enjoyed it. Um, And there are many similarities between Montessori and classical education, but Montessori was developed by Maria Montessori, who was an Italian physician. And she had a school for young children and she saw them you know, playing and learning things. And she saw their natural curiosity and very similar to Charlotte Mason and classical. She wanted children to be able to maintain and grow their natural curiosity and not have that stumped. And so she um, began writing and developing these ideas and curriculum for specifically for young children. And it kind of grew from there. But she definitely believes in self-directed learning. So with Montessori, what you do is you create a learning environment for students where they can go into a room or into your home or into a classroom and they have all of these different works that they can do and works are basically not really assignments but almost like toys or hands-on activities that they pull out and there might be writing works and math works and they choose what they want to do first and they choose what they want to do second there may be the structure of like you need to do this many works in a day or you need to do this many different types of works but the student decides when they do what they decide how much time they need to spend on it. So it's very much a self-directed way of learning. And I, you know, and I would, I would say that there are, there are aspects of that again, that are very classical Mm -hmm. um, in that you're, you're definitely, you're providing the child with a rich, with a rich environment within Mm -hmm. which to learn. And although you're giving them some choice in what to do, you're still kind of, it's not, that's not, completely self-directed, right? That is, that is, it's directed in, in what you put in front of the student. Right. But I, I would say that that definitely gives the student more choice in what they're doing than what I would Mm -hmm. think of as a more classical curriculum. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree, especially at the younger, in the younger years, as they got older, I worked at a public school, so we had some limitations and some people called our school a Montessori school, but, (laughs) but students had a checklist and they were all going to complete everything they needed to complete, but they kind of got to choose what order they went into. And when they finished it, they could choose extensions and things that they were very interested in. Mm -hmm. But at the younger years there, there's just a lot more freedom. And that's one, critique of Montessori is that some children will tend to focus on the things that they really enjoy and maybe not get as much practice in the things they need to be practicing at the younger age. But she she does talk, another similarity is that she does talk a lot about natural child brain development and mm-hmm. aligning education to work with that and not against that. And she uses the term the absorbent mind for young children, which reminds me of the grammar stage because children's mind are just so ready to absorb information. And she actually, that's for the really young years from birth to six. And then she talks about elementary students as kind of moving from completely concrete thinking to starting to be able to think abstractly. And then for the middle and high school years, she talks about adolescence as the time where they're forming an identity. So she talks about this progression of a child's development that's very similar to classical education as well. And I will say when I was, um, and uh, I think we're going to spend some time in 
future seasons of this podcast, talking about more general homeschooling concerns, not just classical mm-hmm. education, but you know, how, how does homeschooling work? What are the problems I might run into? What are some solutions? One of the problems that I ran into with my youngest child was sort of twofold. One was that she was the youngest. And so she'd had three older brothers in her house most of her life. And when her third brother went off to college, I realized she's going to be all alone in the house. It's just mm-hmm. going to be her and us. And I don't think that's going to be a great transition right. for her. Right. And then also by the time she had hit middle school, I was just at a place where I needed a break from homeschooling. You know, I'd been doing it for 16, 18 years at that point. I knew this yeah. was my last child at home and I I really wanted to just play with her and have fun. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the, you know, school mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to look at some, some school options for her and this was for middle school. And the one that we found that I felt was the closest to what we had been doing was a Montessori middle school. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause we walked in and there were all of these kids busy doing all sorts of interesting things and there mm-hmm. was a there was a box of baby chickens on the counter in front of the receptionist that oh somebody my. had just brought in and there were books everywhere and there were interesting projects going on so I just it just it felt very natural for her to transition into that uh, so that's where we we took her for middle school. And then, and I think this is one of the, you know, possible drawbacks of a Montessori education for high school, we we needed to bring her back home because they only went up through eighth grade. Yeah. So because Montessori really is very early childhood focused. Yes. Maria Montessori never really got to designing a curriculum for high schoolers. Mm -hmm. And so there are now middle schools and high schools that call themselves Montessori, but the big Montessori organizations are really still figuring out what that means. And there's very few options at that age level. Now at the zero to six and the six to 10 age level, there's a lot of materials available. But if you're trying to send your child to a Montessori school, you'd be very lucky to find one for the high school. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also I think that even at the younger age, you always have to remember that some children flourish right under self-direction and those are kids who sort of tend to have naturally high levels of executive function but there mm-hmm. there are many many children who need a lot more direction and classical education does provide this emphasis on discipleship you know mm-hmm. direction uh direct instruction from the teacher, the teacher saying, I'm going to tell you how to do this. (laughs) Now copy me. And of course, if that's overused, it can be um, deadening to the child's curiosity. But at the same time, there are many children who actually need that sort of structure and scaffolding in order to move forward. Right. I I taught eighth grade and the, the children were at such different levels. Most of them had been through Montessori schools their entire life, but some at middle school, all they wanted to do was talk to their friends. And when they were younger, they could talk with their friends and work with their friends. But in eighth grade, they didn't want to talk about school. And it was so, so difficult for them to manage their planners. And we we had a lot of supports for them, but there were a few students that ended up getting pulled out by their parents just because they needed more structure uh, and they needed more scaffolds than we were able to provide them. While others, like you said, flourished and learned how to use their planner and learned how to plan their day and learned how to stay on top of things, which was awesome to see for an eighth grade boy or girl. So I think some Montessori schools, again, your mileage Mm -hmm. may vary. 
Um, when people talk about a classical school, I always ask, you know, what is their reading list? <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, most classical schools will say, if you want to learn more about classical education, read these particular books, because that gives you a much better idea of what they mean by classical education. Just because somebody uses the term classical education doesn't mean that they are going to agree with you about what that is. And I feel like that with Montessori schools, that that, that you, you have a lot of the same dynamic there is that it depends. I mean, I found with my daughter's school, that what it really depended on was the teachers and who was head right. of school in any given right. year. That's what changed the character of the school and made it a good place to be. Right. Because yeah. a lot of, just like classical, anyone can call themselves classical. Anyone can really call themselves Montessori, but they're, but it does depend a lot on the training of the teachers, the dedication, their vision, and that is going to set the tone for your classroom or for your school. That's that's completely, completely true. I will say for Montessori, people who do it tend to love it. Some people even claim that it's a cult because people love it so very much. And when I was teaching there, I had had teachers that go to this special training camp for Montessori teachers and they'd come back with like tattoos from their time there. And they had, had, we were were supposed to have like a picture of Maria Montessori in every single classroom, but I I refused, I refused to do that. I was like, I I don't understand why we need a picture of her for my kids to learn her way. Um, So there's a lot of fanfare about it. There's a lot of um, people who do it really, really love it and have found a lot of success with it. So much so that it can be concerning at times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. If you're a classical educator, there is no need to put a picture of me anywhere in your house. Please don't do it. That would be so incredibly That would be very disturbing to walk in. (laughs) I would be very disturbed by that. Yes. My husband always threatens to get... um, Susan Weisbauer bobbleheads for me to take to conferences right. in case somebody wants a bobblehead. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that Maria Montessori would be excited to go into a Montessori school and see that every room is required to have a, a picture of her. It just seems so strange to me, but anyway, yeah, that I was think, the policy. I think, I think that would make her very uncomfortable. Right. So one of the things you've been describing with the Montessori, the Montessori experience is that when a student goes, you know, into the room to pick their, their activity or their work, Mm -hmm. uh, they have a lot of already curated options. Yes. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a homeschool math curriculum but feel intimidated by the idea of teaching math? Math with Confidence is a scripted open and go program that will give you the tools you need to teach math with confidence, even if you've never taught math before. Kate Snow has created engaging hands-on lessons to help your child develop a strong understanding of math step-by-step. This comprehensive curriculum will help you teach math with confidence all year long. Grades K-4 through are now available at welltrainedmind.com or wherever you buy your homeschool books. Yes. And so that kind of transitions into is it sort of like what I would think of as the last big schooling method that we want to contrast with classical education, which is unschooling. Mm-hmm. And unschooling tends to take this emphasis on self-direction, the Montessori emphasis on self-direction. It takes the Charlotte Mason emphasis on self-directed learning and makes it the central principle of all learning. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I'm, because I am not an unschooler and I have some serious objections to this uh, for practical reasons, which I'll tell you about in a minute, I actually wanted to 
quote from unschoolers.org, their definition of unschooling so that I can be sure to do it justice and not give you, you know, like a bias summary. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm ready. Here we go. This is from unschoolers.org. It's the definition of unschooling. A child may learn something from or in spite of the adults in his world, but learning is centered within the child himself. Learning is not the result of teaching. I think that's a really important statement. Learning is not Mm. the result of teaching. Therefore, parents should not focus on being teachers. Instead, the parent's role is to closely connect with the child, noting his, her interests, and then providing opportunities for the child to pursue that interest. That does not mean designing an integrated unit on spiders for a kid who's into bugs. Let's count the legs. Let's learn how to spell spider. Let's read a book about them. That would be more of a unit studies approach. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's my comment. Back to unschoolers.org. Instead, the parent brings as much as possible into the child's world to support that child's passion, however long-lasting or brief it may be. This may mean borrowing books and videos, setting out a magnifying glass, or capturing that hairy guy on the ceiling in a glass jar instead of squishing it. Get the idea? So this definition of unschooling is that instead of programming the child's learning, you allow the child to express an interest in something, Mm -hmm. and then you provide the child with all of these different ways in which to investigate that. Right. Right. So I, as a classical educator, I have a couple of, of sort of, um, I guess I'd call them um, philosophical objections to this. But before mm-hmm. I would even get to that, I, let me just give you the really practical objections to that. You can make unschooling a fantastic way for a child to learn if, number one, you have enough expertise in a subject to know how to provide the child with those opportunities to learn, Mm. okay? Mm -hmm. So you've got, if the child expresses an interest in, uh, let's not do spiders, that's way too easy, thermonuclear reactions, and becomes extremely interested in them, well, okay, there's a lot you can do in terms of providing them with historical research, scientific scientific materials, um, mathematical issues to solve. Do you have the level of expertise to go and find those things organize them and present them to the child so that he can pick from them in order to continue to pursue his interest. Now, I think an unschooler would say, well, yes, but but that's part of the joy of unschooling is that kids figure out how to find this material. Mm-hmm. Philosophically, okay. Practically, that doesn't tend to happen, right? Mm. Um, so my experience just practically is that most parents do not have the expertise and the commitment to follow up on a child's quickly shifting interests in order mm-hmm. to provide them with all of the um, the rich, you know, curated information that they're going to need to follow up on it. That's not just a huge, huge job. And right. I would say that of the families I know that have homeschooled in this method, the kids end up pretty much following the parents' uh, expertise. So... Mm-hmm. If the parents are scientists, the kids all end up in sciences. And if the parents are in the humanities, the kids all end up in the humanities because the parents in supplying this rich information for the kids to investigate, supply what they know. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And it actually, it reminds me of Montessori in the sense that you're creating an environment for learning and then mm-hmm. letting kids have at it. Mm-hmm. But there's a little less structure there. And it, it seems like to do it right it's not what it sounds like. It's not unschooling. Take my kids out of school and they'll figure it out. It's like, it has to be a lot of work to 
like you said, follow and then guide your children by providing all the right resources. It sounds exhausting. And I think for me, I would be nervous about holes and subjects that are more progressive, like writing and math. I think it would make me nervous that I'm not, I don't have like a spreadsheet where I can track my, my child's learning. And maybe that's just me, but it seems so unstructured. I'd be always worried about that. They were getting everything they needed. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that that's a legitimate concern. And again, just practically speaking, my observation of unschooling families that I know is that the kids have some really deep wells of knowledge, and certainly mm-hmm. they have an interest in what they're doing. But they're also, I mean, I can see as an outsider, I can see these like vast areas that have just gone unaddressed. And of mm-hmm. course, in the worst case scenario, the kids just don't really learn a lot because this right. turns out to be so much more time and energy intensive than anybody expected. Right. And I would assume you would have to be more careful than ever about um, things that could eat their time. If, yeah. if they have so much freedom, if you have a kid on a farm, they have nothing to do but kind of run around and learn things. But if you have a kid with a phone, it's so easy to spend your whole day doing nothing. It would be even harder to do right in today's world, I guess. You know, I think that's a really good observation, Susanna, that that the values of unschooling may tend to work out better in a rural environment with less electronic input, because you're right, Mm -hmm. it would be so easy to just stay on the surface and just sort of um, tell yourself that the kids are learning because they're on the internet researching, but what they're really doing is moving from surface article to surface article to surface article to surface article. And again, without a deep knowledge of the field that the kid is investigating, it's very hard for you to direct them to go deeper in that. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I I would say there, I mean, there's some, this is sometimes it's called delight centered learning. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the idea being that that when a kid is really interested in something, you just let them follow it. And absolutely, that is a part of classical education, particularly in the subject areas, in literature and in history. And once they've mastered the basics in science, any classical educator would say, look, part of the goal as we move towards the rhetoric stages, we move towards high school, is for students to develop deep competencies, you know, specializations in particular Mm -hmm. areas and allowing them to follow their interests is a really great way to do that. So there is definitely in classical education, this place for delight centered learning. But I guess where my biggest philosophical disagreement would come with this is in the, I don't know if denigration is the right word, but complete disregard, I would say, for the expertise of a teacher. So, you know, notice in that definition I read, a child may learn something from or in spite of the adults in his world. Learning is not the result of teaching. Mm -hmm. That is philosophically opposed to what a classical educator would say, which is a big part of classical learning is discipleship. There's someone who has a deep knowledge and expertise and wisdom because they've lived Mm -hmm. longer than you have. And part of the model is for you to copy them, model yourself on what they're doing and learn from them. So, you know, just, I guess, on a basic idea level, I would disagree pretty strenuously with this idea that adults have little to teach kids. That that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, to me, I keep seeing connections with Montessori and I see Montessori as like a more structured version of this where teachers are called guides and mm. they don't do as much explicit instruction as you might see in a traditional public school, but they are still respected as the person who can, who you can come to if you need some support with something, who, who is there to support your learning process and 
still to give lessons when necessary. So that seems to me to be a better balance. I guess just to sort of wrap that up, I think classical education does also emphasize um, the development of virtue. Mm. And virtue is the ability to do something because it's right, even if it's not immediately pleasurable. And that, of course, you know, is a moral aspect. But in education, it's important because sometimes in education, we do something that isn't fun because we know that it will pay off down the road. You know, I always wonder with unschooling where something like practicing your scales for your piano lesson comes in. You know, how is, because there, there is, I'm sorry, there is just nothing fun about this, you know? No, I hated that. Doing your hand and five finger exercises. How do you, how do you convince a child that that sort of drill and practice, which is also part of, you know, learning, learning arithmetic, um, Mm -hmm. learning spelling, learning grammar. Where does that, where does that come in, in unschooling? I really do believe that in classical education, virtue Again, ability to do something now, even though it's not immediately interesting for the sake of a future payoff, where that comes in. And I don't see a lot of space for that in most of the unschooling materials that I've looked at. That makes sense. And it's such a practical lesson for adulthood that would be very missed. Oh, yes. A very necessary life skill. Right. Yeah. So uh, so let's wrap up with a like a really big, vague one, because I actually mm-hmm. get asked this a lot. Otherwise, I don't even know if we'd put it in here because it again, it's so vague. I have a right. lot of people say, well, how does classical education relate to the traditional liberal arts? And I think it's usually because there's a school in their area that, you know, advertises itself as a traditional liberal arts school, or they're looking at a college that says traditional liberal arts, and they want to know, okay, well, what are the differences? And I mean, I, to, to that, I would answer, first first of all, what you and I have discussed is that both the term classical education and the term traditional liberal arts can mean so many things. I think the term traditional liberal arts is even bigger, broader, and vaguer. So the first thing I would always say is, what do you mean by that? And right. truth is, most people don't know what they mean by it. They've just heard the term. So, you know, it's a little difficult to talk about the differences and similarities. I mean, I would say that my impression is that most schools that call themselves traditional liberal arts do actually have some connection to a traditional classical education. I mean, probably until the 20th century, they were much closer to actually being the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the 20th and 21st centuries, maybe traditional liberal arts is a little bit more associated with what I would call sort of a standard high school program. Okay. Which is a little bit more programmed, you know? Your four credits in history, your three credits in math, your four credits in literature, something that we would think of as maybe a little bit more on the Prussian side of things. Mm, not as interdisciplinary. Not as interdisciplinary. And and I think in most cases, schools that call themselves traditional liberal arts rather than classical are, are really not paying very much attention to the change in approach that a child's developing mind needs, the change mm-hmm. from the grammar stage to the logic stage or to the rhetoric stage. But I, you know, but I would say that if, I would say that before you could even answer that question, you'd have to figure out exactly what the school or the curriculum means by that, because it's a phrase that can just be used in so many different ways. Right. Which, as we've talked about before, is the same if you're looking at a classical curriculum or a a quote, quote, classical school, because it may just be 
traditional liberal arts. It may not have that breakdown of, of grammar, logic, rhetoric. It may not have that interdisciplinary focus. So they could be, it's just at, at that point that the terms are so messy, you have to do it a little deeper dive. So if you weren't a classical educator, Susanna, which of these other approaches would be your second favorite? I think I know. Uh, I, that would probably be a toss up between unit studies and Montessori. Ah. I really enjoyed teaching at the Montessori school. And when I think about homeschooling my own kids, I know that I want to implement things from both. I really enjoyed using the four-year history cycle. And then within that, incorporating geography and art unit studies Mm. through our history cycle. And I I know I want to do that when I have children to homeschool. And I know I want to use a lot of the things that I learned about teaching executive functioning skills from Montessori schools, like having older kids use their own planner, have their own checklist, things like that. So there's definitely those two I really appreciate and definitely plan to pull things from. Well, if I lived in a universe where I were queen and could do whatever (laughs) I wanted, I might actually go to unschooling, but with a difference, which is mm-hmm. to say I would have I would have full-time teachers in my home, and one of them would be a scientist, and one would be a mathematician, and one would be a historian, and one would be a literary critic, and they would follow my kid around, and every time the kid expressed an interest, they would immediately put together all of these great resources for the kid to explore. <laughs> Sounds like a magical education experience. I know, right? (laughs) I'll have to write a novel about it because I think you're only going to get that if you go through a portal into a different kind of world. Um, In the meantime, I I think I'll stick with classical education. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty solid solid backup plan. Solid backup. Um, For y'all, let us know what system you have experience with, what system you've enjoyed the most. And as always, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We love to hear from you, your thoughts on classical education, home education, school education, comparing education, or any kind of education that interests you. You can reach us at podcast at welltrainedmind.com.